This podcast was produced in partnership with Post Industrial Media. Post Industrial produces original journalism in podcast, print, online, and video, covering communities in transition around the world. Join our community today by visiting postindustrial.com. Hey, it's Heath, back for an important Extremely American update. It's been a while, but a lot just happened with some of the main characters of the podcast, so we wanted to get our listeners caught up. A big part of the podcast was looking at far-right politicians who are part of a trend across the country. Views that were once fringe have crept into the mainstream, from school boards all the way up to Congress. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the primary election that just happened in Idaho. And then we'll touch on the one in Ohio, not to be confused with Idaho. And to do that, I'm bringing in James Dawson. You might recognize his name from the credits because he's the guy who mixed the episodes, worked in music, and generally made Extremely American sound awesome. But he's also an excellent Idaho political reporter in his own right. And he's been following the primary races that affected some of the characters in the pot. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's good, Heath. How are you? I am doing well, just kind of noting all of the stuff we have to talk about. So let's start with the big one. Idaho's far-right, militia-adjacent Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan was running for governor. And she was trying to unseat incumbent Republican Brad Little. And, well, I'll let Jimmy kind of say what happened. Uh, I mean, she lost by 20 points. So, I I mean, like more than 50,000 votes, it wasn't even close. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, of all of the far-right candidates who were running in the state, uh, she was probably the one who was hyped the most. And in the end, uh, I believe she was the one who lost by the most, at least in statewide races. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, each race kind of had its own dynamic, but uh, she certainly lost by the largest margin of the big five statewide races that we were kind of tracking. Yeah. So McGeehan was getting quite a bit of national attention. And I think part of that's because she had kind of the most vocally extreme views. Um, You can argue who had, you know, kind of more fringe views than her, but but she was very outspoken about it. Uh, She was very close. Obviously, uh, we've talked about two, three percenters, this uh, national militia movement um, and very close to the the Idaho members of that. And obviously, the national press uh, really kind of ate up that storyline. And I'll be honest, at the very beginning of the election, um, I thought in a relatively low turnout primary, um, that is low turnout compared to general elections, uh, that she might have a chance. You know, I think she has a very loyal base. Um, But obviously, that didn't work out. And... um, I think one of the takeaways for me is that I think it's easy for us to think that politicians with these super far-right views have more support than they do. I think we even saw that with with Trump, uh, perhaps. Uh, Trump obviously became president. But, you know, he became president with um, with a, a fairly low approval rating that stayed pretty consistent. Um, now, obviously, we don't have the Electoral College at the state level, and and maybe that maybe that base gets uh, a a little bit, the the size of the base gets a little bit more exposed. Um, So I guess that that was sort of my, one of my broad takeaways was that, okay, on a statewide level at least, 
there's a limit to the amount of support that these ideas can get. Um, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious if you had some different takeaways. Yeah, I think that was definitely uh, a significant part of it. Uh, I think another big piece of what happened in that gubernatorial primary was also just, you know, how she, I don't know, was viewed by a whole lot of people in the state, whether they were Democrat or uh, traditional Republicans or far right Republicans, uh, simply because of all of the things that, you know, she uh, chose to do while uh, running that race. So we're talking about appearing at that white national conference with Nick Fuentes, uh, you know, uh, saying she didn't know him, but then did kind of know what was going on and then didn't, but did. Uh, so there was a whole lot of stuff there. And then something that uh, folks who are not from Idaho listening uh, might not know about was this whole uh, situation with her budget as the, you know, in the office of the lieutenant governor, where uh, she had this failed lawsuit brought on by the Idaho Press Club last year uh, over her refusal to release public records. She uh, kind of created this task force that wasn't a task force, uh, you know, to figure out whether or not there was indoctrination going on in K through 12 schools here in Idaho, as well as colleges and universities. Uh, but she didn't want to release thousands of public comments that her office received for that, uh, which a judge said was, uh, you know, ridiculous. Uh, the, the reason cited uh, in that lawsuit where she eventually got private counsel to represent her uh, were absurd. And uh, I think one of the quotes from that decision was seemingly picked at random uh, from Idaho code. And so, you know, she eventually had to pony up about $30,000 to pay for that lawyer and the legislature wouldn't give her that money. And so her office currently is kind of in a uh, a fiscal deficit uh, as we approach the end of the uh, fiscal year. Again, that's pretty insidery, but you know, a lot of people, even Republicans, were were pretty steamed about that, uh, especially since it's like the smallest uh, office in state government. And how could she handle a multi-billion-dollar budget otherwise? Right, right. I mean, so you know, in a nutshell, basically, you had one of the the most sort of extreme conservatives in Idaho unable to balance her own tiny office budget, which... $180,000, we should say. It's it's not much. She only had like a couple staff members who either resigned or were fired. Uh, we're, we're not really clear on that after uh, it was uh, found that she would have to, you know, cover that deficit herself. Right, right. So you, you had Janice McGeehan calling for smaller government, but unable to balance her own budget. Uh, you also, uh, you referenced Nick Fuentes, just for listeners who aren't familiar. She appeared at this conference uh, by this guy who's an actual Holocaust denier, uh, just kind of out and out, open bigot. Um, and she did a, she sent a video appearance into this conference and didn't really apologize for it. Um, and I think <laughs> overall, you know, Jimmy's kind of, what Jimmy's kind of getting at too, and, and you know, she spent this whole election just ripping the current Republican governor to shreds, um, all but calling him a communist. Um, I, I think part of the thing, and, and you kind of saw this play out in it with a lot of these far-right candidates uh, just kind of doing a scorched-earth policy, is that I think you do, you do need a few friends, at least, um, to, to run for office. Uh, there are exceptions, but 
it does seem like this bridge burning um, costs some people uh, and 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 perhaps you know put them in a, a a worse position to to win even in an extremely conservative primary. Yeah, I think that's true, especially since. You know, if you take a look back to 2018, when you had a five-way primary for the lieutenant governor's office that, you know, Janice McGee had won, uh, she didn't win by a whole lot. But, you know, if you have that vocal, you know, 28 to 30 some percent of the vote, that's going to win you a spot. Uh, But in these races where we only saw, aside from the, you know, governor's race, uh, you know, one or two challengers uh, potentially in that race, you know, that, that just doesn't get you across the finish line. So Janice McGeehan, uh, she was the subject of episode six in Extremely American. Um, one of her allies, uh, Eric Parker, he was the subject of episode two. And he, if you remember, he's the leader of the real three percenters of Idaho. So that's a militia here in Idaho that's part of the national three percenters movement. And we kind of talked about his first run for office in that episode and teased to this, uh, this uh, latest run for office. So he was running to be a state senator. And um, spoiler alert, he also lost. And he lost badly as well. Um, now, there's some wrinkles to this. Um, he actually lives in one of the most liberal cities in Idaho. It's called Haley. And it's close to Sun Valley, which you might have heard of. It's a destination ski resort and home to a lot of the sort of rich and famous out there. Um, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore are two very well-known Haley residents. Um, But Eric Parker, you know, uh, the reason we highlighted him is that he's a militia leader, but he's trying to make inroads into politics. Um, He's become um, kind of a kind of a de facto lobbyist uh, out in the uh, in the Idaho capital. I mean, he's certainly become an influential person in the capital, at least among far-right lawmakers. And uh, he's been trying to become a lawmaker himself. You know, he kind of wants to change the system from the inside. So this was kind of an interesting race. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but basically through redistricting, his formerly very Democratic district became certainly a lean Republican district just by the raw numbers, it seems, which would really favor him. Um, You know, in a general election, he would have a much better chance. But there was sort of an established Republican who got pushed into his district and he had to run against her in the primary. Um, So, Jimmy, can you can you talk a little bit about about that, about how Eric Parker sort of had this golden opportunity in the general, but had kind of a harder time getting there. Yeah. So like you said, this was a district that, uh, you know, had been strongly democratic slash kind of a toss up depending on, you know, which seat you were running for. But the reason why that Senate seat was open was because that was actually where the Senate Minority Leader uh, Michelle Stennett was from. She retired. I don't know whether it was because she just didn't want to be in the legislature anymore, or if she kind of saw, um, you know, the the change in her districts. Uh, you you kind of touched on this, but essentially, a more conservative county was brought into uh, that district to kind of balance out the population numbers, and so. Um, you know, like you said, it, it could lean right. Uh, and so you had 
Lori Likely, who's a current uh, state representative running against Eric Parker. Uh, you know, she's a rancher uh, in that kind of s- South Central Idaho uh, area. And uh, she spanked him. I mean, we're, we're talking like 26 points. Uh, it, it was not even close. Um, and, and so it was really interesting test since, you know, he was unopposed uh, two years ago to run against Michelle Stennett. Uh, you know, and got what 40 some percent in the, in the general, it it wasn't close, but it was certainly a whole lot closer than, than this was here. Yes. Yeah. He got, uh, I'm looking at it now. He, uh, (laughs) I don't have this memorized, but, uh, he's, he got 43.6%. Michelle Stennett got 56.4% when he ran in the general election in 2020. So, you know, what he basically did was he got about he got roughly the same as other Republicans historically in that district before it changed. And as you said, he just got I'll be honest, I I was a little surprised at how badly he got beaten in the primary. Um, You you nailed it exactly. He lost by 26 points. Um, He did really badly. And again, I just, you know, it's an it's an interesting test of the far right because Idaho certainly has a lot of people who will go a long way with some of these ideas and 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 this district certainly has some extremely conservative corners. Um, and now it also has some uh, you know very liberal corners too. Um, I'm not sure you know I'm not sure how many uh, sort of democratic leaning voters may have crossed over. But certainly wouldn't have made a 26-point difference. Um, so, you know, what was interesting about this, aside from Eric Parker, because he's such a prominent character, was that Eric Parker was actually one of three militia members who were running. And they all lost. Um, Eric Parker, Eric Parker's good friend, Todd Engel, he was running. Now, Todd Engel is another three percenter who he went out to an armed standoff with the federal government in 2014 in Bunkerville, Nevada. Uh, he was basically trying to defend the Bundy family, who you've probably heard of and certainly uh, heard a little bit about in Extremely American, if you listened. Um, and he, he went to prison for a while. He was convicted of pointing weapons at federal agents. The only one convicted, right? He, well, he was the only one convicted of a serious felony. Yes. Yeah. So Eric Parker actually ended up uh, taking a misdemeanor. Um, but Todd Engel was, Todd Engel was the one who actually faced serious prison time. And he did serve some time. And then a judge threw out his conviction. Um, and he walked free and immediately ran for office. So, um, you know, Todd Engel was actually running in North Idaho and what was fascinating about that race is he was running against someone I would certainly call a far-right politician when it comes to policies, a guy named Sage Dixon. Now, Sage Dixon went and he actually visited Ammon Bundy at a different armed standoff with federal agents. And this was a friendly visit with other Idaho lawmakers. So Sage Dixon is no liberal, um, but Todd Engel was actually running to the right of him. And Todd Engel also lost, although that race was significantly closer in what's becoming, I would argue, one of the most far-right corners of America up in the North Idaho panhandle. Um, And then you had a a third militia member, this one a member of the Oath Keepers, uh, Chad Christensen. 
And he was actually a sitting legislator. So um, so he already had a seat out in eastern Idaho. Uh, he made kind of a cameo in Extremely American. Um, he's in the Oath Keepers. He's met Stuart Rhodes, who's the leader of the National Oath Keepers militia movement. Stuart Rhodes himself right now. Um, he, he's been, uh, he's been charged in, uh, the January 6th insurrection. Um, so there's all kinds of connections here. And Chad Christensen has been one of the most outspoken far-right members, a uh, big supporter of Janice McGeehan, um, and actually, uh, <laughs> made this sort of half-hearted attempt to impeach our current Republican governor, Brad Little, um, that didn't go anywhere. But that's the kind of uh, kind of outspoken politician he is. Um, and Chad Christensen, an incumbent, actually lost his primary and lost it pretty badly. Um, so, you know, it was very interesting because um, these militia members all lost in a year where far-right politicians didn't do well at the statewide level, but actually made some gains, right, Jimmy? They did. Uh, And when we're talking about these, uh, you know, militia members running for, uh, you know, state legislative seats, at least for me, I kind of wonder uh, whether or not it was their membership in militias that, you know, disqualified them in the eyes of those who voted against them? Or was it some kind of character flaw that, you know, they saw in them as an individual, right? Uh, Because you have one other sitting lawmaker who was unopposed and will be unopposed in the general election too, who has militia ties, whether or not she is actually a militia member is is kind of still in question. Heather Scott up in the North Idaho Panhandle, but uh, you know her constituents certainly love her. Uh, you know when you look at um, you know uh, Chad Christensen and his previous election races. I, I mean, like uh, he's come close to being unseated. He uh, you know had kind of a rematch with someone who he did unseat four years ago uh, in in 2018. And, uh, you know, I don't know if his constituents just got tired of him or he was also in a new district, which could have affected his math. But um, to your other point as to, uh, you know, more success for the far right, uh, not necessarily those with militia ties, but uh, certainly ultra conservative uh, Republicans, uh, they won big at the state legislature level, um, especially in the state Senate here, which, uh, again, for those who don't live in Idaho, uh, was kind of like uh, this wall against, uh, you know, a lot of conservative legislation that passed the House. We're we're talking about things like criminalizing uh, transition-related health care for transgender individuals or uh, uh, you know, banning uh, all vaccine mandates or uh, banning mask mandates, things like that, especially uh, uh, related to the pandemic. Uh, but and potentially sending librarians to jail for giving kids uh, certain books, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that was from this year. That was an example from just a few months ago. Uh, so 
they again were were kind of like a uh, this wall against that wave of legislation. Um, they view themselves as, you know, uh, maybe not necessarily more moderate, but certainly more. They, they like to call themselves more thoughtful. Uh, and if you ever, uh, you know, watch some of their debates, uh, they usually last longer than the house. People speak for <laughs> longer periods of time. Uh, so, you know, whether it's thoughtful or they just like to talk out their feelings, who knows? Uh, but they, or just like to hear themselves talk just like in the U S Senate, you know? Sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, so you can make a whole lot of parallels there for sure. Uh, but now, uh, you know, just kind of looking at the spreadsheet that I, uh, had, uh, we're talking about, you know, several seats, almost 10, uh, flipping in, in the Senate where, uh, far right candidates knocked off, uh, incumbents or one in open seats, uh, essentially. And there are only 35 seats in, in the Idaho Senate. So that's a significant number, uh, when really you could only kind of count one or two, uh, significantly far right uh, legislators, uh, you know, among the Senate in, in the past, or at least in this most uh, recent session. Uh, so that's a significant number, uh, for the bills that did get hearings, uh, that came from the house that were pretty far right. Uh, you know, sometimes those would only lose by a handful of votes. Uh, and seemingly that opens up a, a pathway for a whole lot of, uh, bills to get to governor Brad Little's desk, uh, which means, you know, if he wants to block them, uh, he, he can certainly veto them, but whether or not they would be able to overturn that veto, uh, you know, eight seats is a whole lot in a, in a legislative body of 35. Right, right. And yeah, I mean, just given that, I thought it was all the more interesting that these militia members um, did not actually uh, did not actually do well, um, given the sort of openness and of of a lot of voters, at least at the district level, to uh, to some more far right candidates. Um, okay, and then you know, finally, let's take a quick detour to Ohio, a state that Idaho is often confused Iowa? for. <laughs> Iowa, I- Idaho listeners will know what we're talking about. Other listeners, we're we're sort of the forgotten state that people uh, like to place all over the the middle of the country. Um, but it is Ohio. And, um, and, uh, if you listen to Extremely American, you might remember episode seven focused on a guy named J.R. Majewski. Um, now he is running in district nine, which is actually represented by Democrat Marcy Kafter, who's the longest serving woman in Congress. Um, and, uh, Majewski, he's a guy who, literally bust people to D.C. on January 6th to try to help invalidate a lawful election. Uh, He has dabbled in the insane QAnon conspiracy theory, and he's running for Congress. Um, So, you know, we we looked at him a little bit in Episode 7 to talk about how gerrymandering is changing the kind of candidates who come in. And given all of that that I said about him... um, also, no political experience. I, you know, I think a lot of people looked at him and thought, "Well, there's no chance he could win, right?" Well, apparently, there is a chance because he prevailed in his primary. Um, it was a bit of a crowded field, but he came out on top. He is now on to the general election. Um, 
Certainly, uh, he was the most far-right candidate in that election, and apparently primary voters in Ohio's ninth um, liked it. Um, he was also known for uh, having this giant triangular lawn that he painted in uh, different Trump themes, um, and and that kind of uh, that kind of made him sort of sort of minor cable news famous for a while, uh, and and I think helped kind of build a little bit of an audience for him. Um, but I think I think it's really notable. I mean, the the, the reason that um, that we took a look at him is. I think it's notable for a few reasons that somebody like this has a chance now, because I think in the past, those fringe views that he had, and certainly participation in something like January 6th, although to be clear, there's no evidence that he crossed police lines or anything, um, but he was at the he was at the rally. Uh, he bust people to the rally before the riot um, and is very proud about that and has since said a lot of things about, January 6th insurrectionists uh, being treated unfairly. So, you know, I think it's notable that somebody like that um, even has a shot, let alone one, a primary. And, uh, you know, he's got a chance to win now. He could knock out uh, a woman who a lot kind of see as the dean of, uh, of Congress because that district has been, um, has been redistricted and, um, and now uh, a lot of political experts look at it as sort of a, a slightly leaning Republican district. So um, J.R. Majewski is obviously facing somebody in Marcy Kaptur who has a lot more campaigning experience, um, and it, it'll, it'll probably be a battle. But um, you could have this guy who, you know, bust people to the Capitol on January 6th, dabbled in QAnon, becoming a congressman, and uh, he certainly wouldn't be alone in some of those views. Um, so, Jimmy, I, I know this is a, a, a bit of a, a departure from from Idaho, but um, do you have any thoughts about kind of uh, Majewski and, and kind of what he represents more broadly? So you're saying there's a chance uh, <laughs> is essentially like all, all I could think of uh, when you know, looking at this race, but it, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, the more crowded the field, um, especially, you know, again, I'm not a, uh, political reporter in Ohio. I don't know all of the ins and outs of, um, you know, those candidates who were in this race, but you had two sitting state lawmakers, uh, trying to get in on that action. Uh, and, seemingly kind of took votes from each other. I mean, you had one with 31%, the other with 29 and J.R. Majewski coming out with 36%. Uh, so, I mean, by no means any sort of majority there. Um, and so it makes you wonder, would the results had been much different uh, had one of those uh, folks dropped out? Uh, you know, would all of those votes had gone have gone to the other? Uh, possibly, some of them might have gone to Majewski. Who knows? Um, but that is the math that I think a lot of uh, you know far right candidates, whether or not they they hope for them uh, consciously, maybe maybe unconsciously, and that's what kind of gives them the uh, confidence to say, you know what, I can win this. You know, if there's a crowded field and you have your vocal. Uh, minority of supporters, if that's, you know, 25, 30% or, or, you know, maybe even 36%, uh, 
that's enough to get you across the finish line, at least in a primary. Whether or not that holds for a general, who knows? Uh, but, you know, it, it's certainly a, a big tactic that I think, uh, again, consciously or unconsciously, is, is something that's propelling them uh, to these kinds of wins. Right. And, and I think that's a good point about a crowded field. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the sort of national numbers bear out, but it seems like there's been a lot of crowded races and there's been some pretty savvy far right politicians who have jumped into them. Um, and I think knowing exactly what you said that like, okay, I, you know, what I need to do is I need to stoke the base and make sure my most ardent supporters come out. Which they tend to do in primaries. Exactly. They are among the most uh, energized and faithful uh, people who show up to primaries where, uh, and and when we we give these numbers like, oh, you know, J.R. Majewski got 36% of the vote, that doesn't mean 36% of all registered voters in that district. Uh, I didn't look at the turnout from this, but using Idaho as an example, I mean, we're talking like a third of the electorate uh, uh, you know, in a, in a certain district showing up for a primary, maybe. So we're talking about 36% of 33%. Exactly. Right. So, and that's, and that's a point that sometimes gets lost. Uh, you know, these guys are not, these guys are not trying to appeal to the full electorate, not even close. It's just, a, it's a fraction of a fraction. And that's why I think it's, you know, a, a lot of these, a lot of these candidates are, are kind of smartly jumping into races where they know that even if their views turn off a pretty large percentage of the of the electorate, if they can just get through that primary in a district that favors Republicans, then a lot of voters just kind of check the R or the D in the general election and might not, you know, they might not look that deeply into the candidate. And if you're in a district that uh, favors one party or another and you're in that p- favored party, um, once you're through the primary, you you have a huge advantage um, because you've got the other candidate who basically has to play major defense and try to educate busy voters uh, about their opponent. And you know we'll see. I, I think I think what's really interesting about this race with J.R. Majewski and Marcy Kaptur now in Ohio's ninth district is you know it it might it might say a lot about. The, how the rest of the the midterm elections are going to go, and I think it might say a lot about you know how well far right candidates can do in a competitive general, because that's the question. You know, some of these far right candidates who you know break through in more um, purple districts, I think there's a worry among Republicans that they actually might hurt their chances in the general, because you'll have swing voters who look at them and go, "Ooh, that's just a little bit too much for me." And you'd certainly call uh, Ohio's ninth district is uh, a swing district now. Um, the the numbers I the estimates I've seen is something like um, a plus four percentage point Republican advantage, um, which is a, an advantage, but 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 kind of a small one, uh, especially when you have you know you have an incumbent in there with some real name recognition in in Marcy Captor. So so yeah as interesting as the primary was for for me as somebody who watches far-right politics um i think uh i think the general actually is going to be even more interesting and we get so we get so kind of 
<laughs> wrapped around the uh, um, you know the the day to day politics leading up to the primary. I think sometimes uh, um, sometimes reporters like uh, like you and I can sometimes. Uh, uh, not forget, but sometimes, uh, you know, we lose sight of like, oh, man, this is just the first step, right? Yeah, it, in a lot of states. Uh, so when you look at Ohio, it traditionally was much more of a toss up state. Now, you know, with the last few presidential elections, seeing it trend, you know, towards the right in, in general. Uh, but with Idaho, I mean, we, we haven't elected a, a Democratic governor since 1990, not a Democratic statewide candidate since 2002. So, I mean, here, the primary is the election for the most part, uh, you know, unless you something crazy happens, right? Uh, uh, or some of these state legislative races where, you know, you might live in a particular district that's much more split or like... Uh, the capital Boise, you know, parts of it uh, are certainly Democratic strongholds. And then, you know, as you kind of go out towards the suburbs, uh, slowly that's turning more blue. Uh, but, uh, you know, in other states where it's much more competitive, certainly uh, it, it these primaries are just the first step, like you said, where you still have months and months to go uh, of campaigning. Uh, they're not across the finish line. Right, months and months. Uh, I think, I think, I think the takeaway that maybe everybody can agree with is our political calendar is way too long. Oh my God, it's yeah. just. I mean, it's not even a calendar anymore, right? It's 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 kind of year round. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. It's uh. It's one of those things where you wonder, like, would we be better off with a parliamentary system? But then you think of political leaders in other countries calling snap elections even after they just had elections a few months beforehand. And is it even really all that better? Right, right. And yeah, well, frankly, passing anything through Congress right now is uh, is hard enough. I imagine changing our entire political system is uh, a bit pie in the sky anyway. Oh, that's never going to happen, Heath. <laughs> well, um, you know, on that note, uh, we're going to be looking ahead to the general election. Um, stay tuned. Hopefully we'll, have, uh, hopefully we'll have some things here and there to, to keep you updated but um, but we just wanted to bring you up to speed because, you know, we had some really significant developments. Obviously, Extremely American is uh, is kind of timely, and that means, uh, you know, things were changing even as we published. Um, so, yeah, we had, uh, we had some losses among some of the people that we profiled, and um, one pretty high-profile win that... Um, you know, I will I will go out on a limb as somebody who's watching this and say could be a bellwether as to uh, how these midterms are going. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, we'll keep an eye on J.R. Majewski and, and Marcy Captor out in Ohio. And um, we'll keep uh, keep watching uh, Idaho politics as well, because uh, even though those uh, those folks lost, a lot of their allies won and uh, it continues to be a battle out here between the far right and the uh, still pretty right um, conservative Republicans. Still very ruby red uh, Republicans. Yes, yes. D- despite some of the rhetoric out here, there's, uh, there's not a lot of liberals in this discussion, if any. All right, Jimmy. Well, hey, um, thanks, for, uh, thanks for hopping on here on the other side of the mic uh, for, this, for this bonus. 
and um, hopefully we'll uh, hopefully you get a little bit of a break in Idaho politics for a while. It seems like seems like that spigot's become a fire hose. Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, thankfully, uh, things kind of generally calmed down during the summer since a lot of politicians are farmers and ranchers themselves. So they got they got their own work cut out for them aside from campaigning, too. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And um, hopefully we'll have more for you down the road. See you later. Extremely American was created by me, Heath Drusen. Story editing by Morgan Springer. Mixing and sound engineering by James Dawson. Original music by Micah Huang. Additional music from Artlist. Kim Palmero is editor-in-chief and CEO of Post-Industrial Media. Thanks also to Boise State Public Radio, the exclusive public radio sponsor for this podcast. I hope you'll take a second to rate and review this podcast on whatever app you're using to listen. It helps other people find us. This podcast is made possible through the Candida Fund. Learn more at kendeda.org and from the Joyce Foundation, joycefdn.org, with support from the Forbes Funds at forbesfunds.org. For photos from this series and some companion articles, head over to postindustrial.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Post Industrial Media. Post Industrial covers people, culture, and ideas for post industrial communities around the world. Visit postindustrial.com to learn how you can join the post industrial community.